Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network. This is your host, Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and you are listening to an interview for the channel in language. And I'm very excited today to have Kate Harris on. Kate's new book, 2019, Oxford University Press, is entitled Beyond the Rapist, Title IX and Sexual Violence on U.S. Campuses. Uh, the starting point of the book, in a nutshell, is this idea that recently more and more people have started to argue that when we talk about sexual assault, which is and is not rape, right? So so all rape is sexual assault, but not all sexual assault is rape is the way to think of that. That we need to look, quote unquote, beyond the rapist, meaning instead of looking at this as something that individuals do because they are bad, we need to look at the structures and cultures that kind of produce rape as a viable option, not only um, as a behavior, but also produces some subjects as rapeable, because obviously not every subject is equally rapeable, if, if you want to think in those terms. And so Kate not only looks beyond the rapist, but also asks, what do we do then? Once we look beyond the rapist and we look at this thing called culture or this thing called structure or this thing called an organization, how do we look? What are we looking for when we talk about sexual assault, especially uh, and in this case, looking at Title IX, Kate's looking at organizations that historically, right, have been on the cutting edge of fighting sexual assault. And so when you're looking at how those very institutions can, in fact, perpetuate uh, or rather authorize certain modes of sexual assault or certain ways of thinking about sexual assault, you're getting into really thorny territory. So it's a very brave book. Um, and if um, Kate is still on the line, Kate, you still there? Still here. Hi, Lee. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. And I didn't ask, can I call you Kate or would you prefer Dr. Lockwood Harris? Absolutely. Please call me Kate. Okay, awesome. So, Kate, um, great. I'm glad you're still there. Sometimes my sometimes my explanations get carried away and people hang up. So, um, oh, no. do you want to add anything to sort of my, base, my, my basic spiel for the listener who probably has not had a chance to read your book yet? Sure. Yeah. So the title of the book, Beyond the Rapist, as you said, is really an effort to frame sexual assault, a variety of kinds of sexual assault, as an organizational problem. And so I think usually when people think about violence, the first things that may come to mind are these individual instances where maybe somebody punches somebody else, or there's blood or broken bones or bruises. Um, and that's really a very individual way of thinking about violence. So beyond the rapist is getting us to think in ways that address systems and processes and practices. And from my own training and expertise in a subfield of communication called organizational communication, we think that these systems and processes and practices are what make an organization. So the book is really an effort to locate sexual assault and sexual violence in these processes and practices and systems that make up organizations so that we can think about this kind of problem as one that really emerges not from, say, the bad attitude or bad decisions or bad behavior of one person, but from the whole culture. And actually, I think that gives us more ways to push on the problem if we think about it past individuals. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good response. I mean, whenever you tell somebody sort of this general way of thinking, it's like so scary because it's like, oh, what do you mean? It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah but that's good because if it's just one specific person, then you're always screwed if that person won't change their behavior. But if you think of people as effects of the systems around them, then all of a sudden we have a kind of agency. It's, it's a weak sort of agency because obviously, you know, these things are massive and they take tons of time to change. But 
um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's nice that it's not just like about like, you have to go to every single person who's doing this stuff and treat them as individual cases. Right. Yeah. I think it really expands our way of thinking about how to transform and address this problem. Um, and I think that that's actually quite hopeful. I think you're absolutely right that thinking about mm-hmm. sexual violence as systemic could be really scary. I, I think that's really important in terms of thinking about ways to address this, that it could seem overwhelming if it's located everywhere. But I think it's always really important to think, yeah, if it's located everywhere, that means there are multiple different avenues for pushing back. Um, And I think, you know, one other thing I'd add about this title, you know, another kind of response to thinking about violence in this way um, can elicit in folks, uh, well, does this mean that we're not going to hold people responsible or accountable for their actions if we're not thinking about individuals? And that's actually not the case, right? The title of the book is Beyond the Rapist, not Mm -hmm. Ignore the Rapist or the Rapist Doesn't Matter or something like that, right? It includes accountability and responsibility for individuals who take heinous violent actions. And also, in addition to that, can we think systemically? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so you do, and you could have done this in a lot of contexts, but you chose in terms of organizational context, but you chose um, sort of like Title IX educational systems. Is there a a reason for that background or how'd that come about? Yeah. So when I started doing research for this book, I had just arrived at a new institution. Uh, I'd been teaching about sexual violence for Mm. quite some time already and had developed some skills for how to approach these questions really thoughtfully in the classroom in a way that's trauma-informed and that is aware of the really strong reactions that people can have for a variety of different reasons when we're teaching about really tough issues. And um, I arrived at a new institution and learned about that institution's Title IX requirements. And at the time, this was one of the first institutions to um, to require of teachers that they report any instance of sexual violence that they heard about. And as I was going through training at that institution mm. and learning about how this would impact my teaching, I thought, ah, this is really going to change what happens in my classroom. And I need to think really differently about what it means to invite people to speak about their experiences of violence. I come from a tradition of feminist pedagogy Mm. that suggests that it's really important to speak about experiences and to use experience as a way to theorize and a way to engage action in the world. And so when I got to this Mm. new institution that had these requirements under Title IX that are designed to provide a more comprehensive and robust response to sexual violence, I realized that also that would mean I needed to rethink some of my teaching. And so that was the impetus really for thinking about the organizational dynamics of sexual violence in higher education. You know, and I think I'd also add that higher education is a place that um, historically has had high rates of sexual violence. Um, so some folks suggest mm-hmm. that yeah. the military and higher education are two places where sexual violence is at some of the highest rates. And you know, for the university, one reason for that is that you know people between eighteen and about twenty four are often the population that experiences the highest rates of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. So part of that is about the people who tend to be at universities and colleges most often. Yeah, and I think the other thing they share in common, and I think you maybe mentioned this in the book, it's, it's so hard because usually as I'm reading people's books, I'm also reading all the footnotes that they're, sure. that they're putting, so sometimes I get confused, but that both the military and uh, higher education have the, have the most at stake in disavowing sexual abuse, right? In the military, it's because of discipline, right? You don't, you don't want this idea that people in the military could somehow have, I don't know, bad judgment skills or be out of control. Right. Uh, unlike, say, a prison where... Sexual assault is actually part of the disciplining mechanism. And then with college campuses, same thing, right? We think of this idea of like the carnal as somehow totally divorced from the intellectual. And there's this, you saw this with blue lights for a while where campuses were refusing to put up blue lights because they didn't want people to see the blue light as a symbol and think, oh, this is a place where sexual assault happens. Mm, For sure. Because it somehow soils the image of like intellectual perfection or whatever, purity, if you want, whatever you want to call that. Yeah, and I think that you're pointing to how higher education 
separates, I think you said the carnal from the intellectual, is really important, especially for the framework of this book. Right? And I think I mentioned at the outset that usually when we think about violence, we first think of the, the physicality of it. And I think that actually yeah. mm-hmm. keeps us from being able to think about violence as embedded in organizations if the only part of violence that we recognize or think about is that physicality of it. So universities are really this place where that separation between thought and intellect and words or communication that's so central for the field that both you and I are in is separated often from bodies and physicality. And so you're absolutely right that right to acknowledge that universities, this place of intellect is a space where these grotesque and brutal embodied violent acts happen. If we retain that separation between intellect and bodies, that kind of undoes, in many senses, the self-identity of higher education and universities. Uh, So part of the idea of this book is to really challenge that kind of separation between mind and body or between things that are said and things that are enacted um, as a way to think differently about how violence gets located and perpetuated and even enacted in organizations. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an awesome book in terms of all the, the threads that you've decided to weave together, because, I mean, as we all know, there could have, you could have said a lot more, right? <laughs> but I think the, what you did wind up saying, uh, you were, you really brought up some really poignant arguments that I'm excited to get into over the next half an hour. So do we need, do you think we need to do more definition of title nine? I don't know like how much you think, cause you do a nice job of laying out sort of this basic rhetorical history of title nine in the book that was helpful, but I don't know if maybe you just want to summarize it super fast so that as we talk about title nine, people listening will understand what we mean. Yeah, sure. So title nine is a uh, federal law that um, at, it basically requires gender equity in educational institutions. And so prior to the last 10 years or so, Title IX was often talked about in the same breath as uh, sports and athletics. Uh, but more recently, it's the one of the key mechanisms that educators and activists have used in order to ensure that people have equal access to higher education on the basis of gender. Uh, so there were some you know, key legal decisions uh, in the early 2000s that established that certain forms of sexual harassment, including sexual assault, limit people's ability to equally access education and are, therefore can be, in some instances, violations of Title IX, this requirement that people have equal access on the basis of gender to education. So along with that kind of stipulated requirement, there have been a variety of mechanisms to get universities thinking about how to actually create those conditions. Uh, So in the around 2011, 2014, there were a variety of what's called dear colleagues letter, dear colleague letters issued that provided guidance about how universities um, could, and in some cases should, create these conditions. Uh, And many universities across the U.S. starting in late 2000s, 2010, around then, started adopting uh, what's often called mandatory reporting policies, where uh, Mm -hmm. any number of folks across campuses would, if they heard about or witnessed an incident that could violate Title IX would be required to report that to an appropriate officer or office on the campus. Um, So universities differ quite a bit in who's required to make those reports, but the university where I did the research for this book had a somewhat expansive definition of who is a mandated reporter Uh, so that it included any graduate student who was also employed on the campus, who had the ability to grade people, who could make hiring or firing decisions. Um, So, you know, at that particular university, most anybody who was employed there was obligated to make these reports. Um, 
Yeah, so that, that's kind of a quick overview of, of Title IX. There's been a lot of activist organizing around Title IX, um, including some pretty visible items in popular culture. So there's the film The Hunting Ground that examined some of these questions. Uh, there's mm-hmm. the book Missoula that delved into some of these issues too. Well, and it's interesting because in October, the in New York State, which is where I am, the Title IX rules changed and mandatory reporting became much more expansive. Mm. And so now I'm a mandatory reporter in all contexts, whereas pre- previously I had like specific, like, like as an advisor of a club, I was a mandatory reporter, but not in the classroom. Uh, interesting. And now I'm always, basically always a mandatory reporter. Sure. Yeah. And what and was that's... so interesting in all of these trainings we had to attend... Oh, sorry. Did I cut you off? No, go ahead. I was just going to say what's so interesting, and it sort of dovetails nicely with some of the stuff in the book, is what was so interesting in these trainings is how frequently the mandatory reporter was talked about in terms of producing accurate statistics for evaluating the safety of the college from almost like a consumer standpoint. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't want to over-report if we don't have to, because then we're going to look like we're unusually violent. And how little was talked about why exactly mandatory reporting is good for, like, I don't know, the student. Yeah, interesting. And I think that that kind of emphasis on compliance or on um, questions about marketing is pretty common that comes up around this. You know, I think at the mm-hmm. university where I did this research, which in the book I call Public Research University or PRU, um, yes, I thought that was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was actually was a last hilarious. minute change in the book. I had used a different acronym and um, my very uh, astute editor noticed that the acronym was actually the name of a different university. So we changed it the, at the last second oh, to no. use the acronym Public Research <laughs> University or PRU. Um, but yeah, so at that university, you know, both in the trainings around Title IX and in people's everyday conversations around reporting, uh, some folks really frame this in terms of compliance questions, um, in terms of complying with the law. Um, you know, there was certainly a fear there that if reporting numbers went up, that that would then make the campus look like it was an especially dangerous place and people wouldn't want to send, uh, their parents wouldn't want to send their kids there. Um, so I think there's definitely that, aura around these conversations. Um, and, you know, I definitely, in some ways, understand that. But right, based on what I know about sexual violence, I think it's a little bit misguided to emphasize that compliance perspective or um, to really play to people's possible fears. Or the, the reality is, that we know in all kinds of situations, sexual violence is vastly underreported. So from my perspective, right. yeah. if the numbers of reports go up, that's actually a sign that something's going right, because it means that the kinds of uh, stigma around talking about sexual violence may be lessening. It could mean that folks' trust in the organization that they're a part of might be increasing. It could mean that there's more of a sense or a faith that justice will be enacted if people talk about what's gone wrong. So really, we should want numbers of reports to go up, not down, right? The increased reporting is an indication that something's going right, not not decreased reporting. Uh, so I think that there's some you know, missing well, complexity also draws into, there. Well, and it also draws into sharp relief, the de- right? Because like from our perspective... I'm assuming sexual assault is, it's not the norm, right? That it's, it's part of the logic of all of these structures of higher education and, and gender norms and stuff. And so I'm not, I, I'm thinking of, let's already assume it's kind of the rule and let's make it the exception. Whereas the way that it's presented to me from the state is it's the exception. Let's not turn it into the rule. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, that that idea that it's the exception, it, it's just inaccurate, right? It's just inaccurate. Like the, the rates of right. sexual violence <laughs> yeah. are really high. You know, and in college, um, the stat gets talked about a lot that one in five women experience completed or attempted assault by the time they graduate. And so, 
you know, that stat alone means that everyone who has spent any time in higher education knows somebody who has experienced sexual violence and is therefore impacted by sexual violence. Right? And if we talk about the numbers of LGBTQ students who are impacted by sexual violence, that number is much higher. The stats are usually above 50% of students who are in the LGBTQ community who experience some kind of sexual violence. Um, you know, and there are men who are impacted by sexual violence too, although most often for men, sexual violence is experienced prior to age of 18. So for most folks before they're arriving in college, but that, that's a huge number of folks who are in and around higher education who are experiencing this. So to, to think it's the exception, it's just inaccurate, right? It's just not consistent with what we know. And yeah, right. for me, that adds kind of an extra layer mm-hmm. of um, frustration around the kind of, I would almost call it an obsession with counting or an obsession with the numbers. Uh, So at a lot of universities, before a prevention program or a response program gets put in place, there's a lot of time spent on counting and assessing. And, you know, in most situations as an academic, I think that's a really good impulse to want to really understand the problem. But for this particular problem, it brings up the question for me of, Right. So who are, who's who doesn't have the knowledge about how often this is happening? Right. Who are those numbers being produced for? Uh, and, you know, I think there's lots of knowledge in, you know, both in formal experts and in people's experiential knowledge about how often sexual violence is happening and about its pervasiveness. And so I, I get real frustrated when I see organizational processes in place that are emphasizing accurate counts, because uh, I think often that's getting used. And certainly this was the case at Public Research University, where I did the research, um, that that ends up being a stalling mechanism, a way to kind of not address the problem, rather than to really thoughtfully think about what kinds of comprehensive prevention efforts can be put in place and what kinds of responses when sexual violence does happen would be really trauma-informed, would be really uh, governed by principles of justice. And that conversation really gets lost in that training that you're describing where there's an emphasis on compliance, on, oh gosh, let's not look like a dangerous place. You know, th- those really could miss. Yeah. Um, and, and I think set aside the best knowledge and expertise that's available about this particular problem. Well, and it gets to the, the heart of the book that I found so fascinating, which is this phrase. So you use this as the title to chapter three, but it's a nice phrase just, um, I think, generally across the book, that violence communicates differently. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about this getting an accurate count, I, I mean, it's just a way of thinking about uh, the relationship between violence and communication that does not vibe with what I what I understand from common set from like just experiential perspective, nor what the book argues, because you use this concept of diffraction mm-hmm. that that sort of um, it's kind of like a catchphrase for how it is that violence communicates since it, since it doesn't communicate like the slap in the face, which is an action, but it doesn't, it's not, a, it's not this reporting counting thing where the only thing you can do about violence is communicate about it. Right. But violence has a kind of agency that's not the same as the slap, but it's not, not the slap. Right. So maybe yeah. we want to jump into that and you can kind of actually talk about how violence communicates and what this diffraction concept is that you're, that you're taking, I think, very astutely from uh, new feminist materialism. Yeah. So, so in that phrase, what I'm saying, violence communicates, and that violence communicates differently. I'm, in some ways, engaging with kind of a truism of a lot of different work about violence that argues that violence is silencing or that violence produces silence. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis in activist communities that I'm a part of on breaking the silence around violence, on speaking about this, on um, not being uh, beholden to shame and stigma and processes of blame that often get attached to victims rather than perpetrators. And so I'm very much, you know, appreciative of those conversations about breaking the silence, about speaking about violence. And also in that particular chapter towards the middle of the book and in the book as a whole, I'm trying to also argue that actually violence communicates itself, that it's not so much that violence stands in opposition to communication, but that it stands in opposition to a particularly narrow understanding of communication. So 
uh, you know, what we were just talking about with reports, that'd be uh, a way to talk about communication, right? As a, as a mandatory reporter at the institution I work at now and where I did the research, if someone talked about violence, then I needed to make a report. And there's kind of then this focus on, in particular, huh. victims providing testimony about their experiences and on their willingness to um, basically lay bare this traumatic experience that that becomes the mechanism for prompting institutional and organizational responses. Whereas if we think about violence itself communicating and start looking at different systems and processes other than just events and people's testimonies, we can start seeing different things. And one of the reasons why I think this is important to think about violence communicating and violence communicating differently is because even in the situations where there's the clearest evidence that violence has happened, where people are talking in ways that clearly indicate that something has gone dramatically wrong, that kind of evidence also often is not persuasive in the ways that would mobilize organizational transformation. So there are a number of examples of this in the book. There is a case at Public Research University um, where somebody acknowledged that they had assaulted someone else. And there was a recording of that acknowledgement. And even with that kind of evidence, this oh direct description of, I committed violence against you, I apologize, I did this thing, here are the facts of what I did. Right? Even with that kind of direct talk about violence, it still didn't produce an outcome that I and many communities would consider to be just, or that person was not held accountable for their actions. And we see that in a lot of different places. There are so many stories about this in popular culture, in government, it's everywhere in, um, in the culture in the United States right now and other parts of the world where even really clear talk about violence is not understood by dominant groups as evidence that violence has happened. So, you know, I, I find that kind of idea that we need to talk about violence to just not be super sufficient for for prompting the kind of organizational change that needs to happen. Um, yeah. So I think, and you had also linked this question or this to um, the conversation about diffraction. All right. So, you know, I think if we're going to think about, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great, I, it was a really cool new concept for me. So I'm like excited for you to give it to the audience. It's like a little present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess if we're going to think about how does violence communicate in a way that we're not just thinking about communication about violence or talking about violence, right? How does violence itself communicate? It means that we have to move away from uh, things that represent other things. And I'll talk a little bit more about that um, as I go. But the way that I was addressing this methodologically and analytically and theoretically in the book is through a theory that's sometimes called feminist new materialism. And um, it has arrived from a variety of different disciplines. So there are folks kind of developing this style of thinking and theorizing in physics and in philosophy and in film and education. It's a really cross and interdisciplinary way of thinking. Um, and one of the concerns of new materialism is that, particularly in research on communication, that communication has become such a powerful explanation for what happens in the world that we've lost touch with hard reality, with bodies, with facts, with the stuff that's real. And so folks have been trying to think about ways to better explain the relationship between what people say and the physical things that go on in the world. Uh, so feminist new materialism provides a really, I think, rich set of tools for thinking about that relationship between the physical world and the communicative world or the world of words differently, as if they can't be separated. And um, I think a core thing that I 
took up in this book was this idea of diffraction. Um, there are a number of physicists who could provide really elegant explanations of diffraction through lights and waves and water and all of this. Um, but I like to think about it and explain it to folks as, you know, if I was looking up at the moon at night and sometimes you can see a ring around the moon that I'm not seeing exactly the moon or exactly the ring, but what I'm noticing is the result of a number of processes that are ongoing as I'm watching that involve light, that involve the Earth's atmosphere, that involve water droplets, that involve the kind of neurological things that are happening in my head as I'm looking, uh, and that all of those are involved in this moment to me that looks like there's a ring of light around the moon. So kind of use that same principle to think about violence in universities. Um, so this would mean that rather than thinking about, okay, this event happened, how do people talk about it? Or a sexual assault happened, is there a report? How do we report that instead we start tracing the really complicated processes that surround both the event and the talking about it so that they're not so disconnected anymore. So in this book, that meant that I spent quite a bit of time talking about how my own research process uh, was involved in and impacted the book that emerged and the analysis that I was able to do and how different federal laws shaped the research process and um, I pay attention to things that happened in interviews that I did where I, along with the person I was interviewing, were kind of in the moment having conversations about how to navigate, what to say, how to say it, um, what the consequences of particular things that could be said about violence would, like what processes that would prompt if we talked in particular ways. Um, and the idea here, the hope is to surface this much more complicated set of processes that are happening around sexual violence, rather than focusing on how often is sexual violence happening? Is sexual violence happening? How is it happening? Instead, kind of really embedding all of these organizational processes into what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was um, it was cool to think about, you know, and like. Am I attuned to diffraction? Have, have I, so, like, reading you describing what it looks like to think, think, think diffracted, I guess you would say, <laughs> it makes me think, like, where have I kind of, where have I cut these two things off for the sake of, like, easy interpretations? Sure. I, you know, I think that for research, there are always things that are cut. Right. And and I think a diffraction also helps us to to pay attention to those to those cuts, right, to those places where um, you have to, in some ways, place limits on what can be considered in research on how much can be said. You know, there are page lengths in publications and there are limits to time and <laughs> all kinds of factors that are going on. And I think the the thing that seems really productive about diffraction to me is that it can help us to think about, okay, why are those particular cuts or limits being drawn? And how did those limits and cuts get drawn? And which are the limits and cuts that were in place mm -hmm. before this research process even began? Right? How do they stretch back into history? How are they embedded in an organization? And it kind of calls attention to, I think, all of those ongoing processes in a way that I think is really productive, uh, especially because diffraction also has this uh, long lineage in feminist theorizing that puts at the center questions about power and difference and inequity. Right? So um, which separations are useful for thinking about power and difference and inequity and which ones are actually maybe complicit in that process. And sometimes it's both, right? It's not necessarily one or the other. 
Yeah, and then in the next chapter, um, you attend to sort of like how the how these things are also gendered and raced. So you also do uh, n- not just like looking at the concept of sort of this you know disembodied way of thinking things, but then how that directly intersects with identity categories. Because you know, like you use this phrase in the book that not all well, you, this isn't verbatim, but not all bodies and subjects are like equally rapeable. And so, not only how does uh, how do, how do organizations organize violence, but then also how is that violence kind of differentially organized across race and gender? Yeah. And, you know, I think in that, um, towards the middle of the book, we start thinking about, um, you know, as, as I'm starting to complicate this separation between physical violence and, uh, what happens in words or in talk, uh, we start to think about, okay, so if those things aren't necessarily separate, then what is it, what action is it that words can take, right? Can words themselves be violent or not? Mm-hmm. And under what conditions would we answer that question differently? And I think that one, that set of questions is really important for this book and for a larger conversation that's happening about sexual violence and organizations' role in it. Um, you know, one thing that really stays in my mind about the research at Public Research University uh, was a set of meetings that happened following racially motivated hate crimes on the campus where, you know, the community had come together several times to talk about how to respond differently to this. Um, And in this uh, kind of a final series of these meetings, a group of campus activists who are primarily students of color, LGBTQ students and allies uh, with these groups came into the room and uh, staged a protest in the meeting saying, you know, you've asked us to testify again and again about our experiences on the campus. And you say that you can't find the numbers to support our testimony. And we're kind of done with this style of engaging, right? Like you've asked us to testify, you've listened to our testimonies, but you're unwilling to take action if you can't find the numbers. And, you know, I think there's a dynamic that goes on in organizations of blunting the action of people's testimony about violence, of kind of setting it aside and, thinking that it doesn't actually count as evidence unless it also can also be counted in this very narrow way in numbers. Uh, and so there's a kind of politics of knowledge that's going on that sets aside, in particular, the experiences of LGBTQ students and students of color uh, and students' ways of knowing about violence um, such that folks don't have to respond. Um, you know, I think there is also some I think folks at Public Research University who were responsible for kind of creating and enforcing and training about reporting policies would say often that one of the reasons why these policies were in place was so that if people talked about violence and knew about violence, that people had to take action. And in those rationales, people would say often you know, talking about violence doesn't actually do anything, that there's no action in that talk. And, you know, in some ways that really resonates. There are plenty of instances of organizations setting up listening systems without any intent to make changes. This goes way back into management mm-hmm. history where uh, folks under Elton Mayo and Human Relations School figured out that if managers listen to people, that that actually impacts productivity positively, even if there's no change made. So that can be really pernicious in an organization. And for those reasons, I think that that rationale for mandatory reporting makes sense. But there's also, I think, something missing in that kind of rationale that mandatory reporting is in place so that folks have to take action. And I think what's missing is that there is action in the kind of talk that dismisses people's testimony and the action keeps in place a system that's already mm-hmm. established. Yep. And I think 
it's important to understand that as right. There's always acts. There's always action. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. There's always an action that follows. Uh, Yeah. One of my first interviews that I did for New Books Network is with Brad Vivian, and he's another rhetorician in, in communication studies. And his new book, Commonplace Witnessing, looks at six or seven. Uh, historical cases of of sort of like somebody giving an account of witnessing all, across all different like Holocaust and and um, one of the first um, black leaders to speak after the Reconstruction had started and it's really fascinating because in each context he looks at how the same rhetorical moves are taken up as like true testimony but how mm-hmm. in some cases it makes and people do nothing except more of the same in some cases like these revolutionary actions follow. In one case, everyone thought that this was like a Holocaust testimony. Turns out the guy was never even in the camps. Mm. But, but the but the key here wasn't whether or not the person was in, their intent was genuine or that they suffered. The point was how well their testimony conformed to the expectation of what witnessing looks like. Mm. But if you conform too much, it actually becomes incredibly easy for people to do nothing with it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Very interesting, right? And, and it's all about how every testimony does perpetuate an action. It's just that the action doesn't always have this uh, uh, bear truth to my experience, get change in system, right? It's, it's not that move, but it is a an action. It's just not, in many cases, the one that, like, for example, the student protesters thought was going to happen if they were just sincere enough in the testimony. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think that really resonates in terms of some of the dynamics that I saw happening at, at Public Research University. And, you know, I think paying attention to which kinds of listening are active and which kinds of speaking about violence takes what kind of action is really important, especially in this context of higher education and uh, thinking about people who've been sexually assaulted um, because it draws really clearly out one way that some iterations and enactments of this re- these reporting policies actually really don't serve the people who are experiencing violence. So at uh, Public Research University where I did this research, somebody could say, you know, I want the university to take action in response to this violence they've experienced but if they didn't include the name of a perpetrator or any des- descriptive details, mm-hmm. the university didn't have to do anything. Whereas if that same person said, uh, you know, Smith committed violence against me, assaulted me, but I don't want the university to do anything, that statement would prompt this whole reporting mechanism and response from the university, right. even though it's explicitly against the wishes of the person who experienced the violence. So, you know, tracking which kinds of speech are considered to be active, I think really draws out who's being served in these policies. Um, And, and, you know, that university focus on the name of an individual person is really important because at this particular place, when students started talking about group-inflicted harms, right, where... The perpetrator was not one individual, Mm -hmm. but a culture or a collection of individuals or a small organization within the university that those kinds of harms couldn't be addressed through the Title IX mechanisms that were in place there. And more than that, were often referred to the office on campus that was responsible for racial equity and multicultural work. Uh, So kind of there is this shift in labor. Yeah, which from, of course are often like the least resourced, most quarantined <laughs> resources on campus. Right. Yeah. Right. So like, and that matters if the labor of addressing organizational violence gets shifted from mm-hmm. this particular mechanism to resor- the areas of campus that are under-resourced, that are often employee, the employees of these particular areas are often already overburdened with lots of extra labor of a variety of different kinds in the university. So, you know, there wasn't really a mechanism for thinking through how sexual violence is also racial violence. It kind of got separated out through 
these ideas about what kinds of speech is active, right? And if it's only active if you name a perpetrator who is an individual, then there are this whole system of intertwined gender and racial violence just becomes unintelligible in terms of what the university responds to. Yeah, and, and this whole concept of action is so fascinating because, for example, like as a mandatory reporter, when they say that um, if a student says something to you in passing, like they were sexually assaulted on the campus, but they don't want you to do anything about it, you're obligated then to to take action. So it, so what happens is that suppose a student comes and they're like, hey, and they accidentally or they, they don't understand what they're doing and they disclose to you that you want an action taken they get all freaked out when you tell them like, Oh, don't say anymore. I'm going to have to take action. So I want to make sure that you understand what's happening. But action literally could be me walking them two feet next door to the title nine office. Mm. Right. Whereas a student will then come to me all really wanting action to be taken. Like, Oh great. You're a mandatory reporter. Like you take action, but same thing. It's like, well, actually action is (laughs) action is literally just, I have to do something with this, but that doesn't mean justice. It doesn't mean punishment. It doesn't mean holding people accountable. It literally means in the purest sense of the word, I have to take an action. So it's fascinating how students will think action means this very glorious, amazing thing or this terrifying, overwhelming thing. But it's like, no, you're really you have like a concept of action that is not how the organization thinks about action in this context. Yeah. And, you know, I really resonate with student experiences of both the that set of fears and hopes uh, around what an organization yep. mm-hmm. will do. You know, I think that um, that fear is real. I think there's quite a bit of evidence about how organizations can re-victimize people who have already experienced violence by not allowing the people who have experienced violence to have control and decision-making power over what happens next. And so there's a risk in some iterations of these reporting policies that the people who have already experienced a trauma, which involves wresting control of their own bodies away from them, feel that again if they don't have knowledge ahead of time about what happens when you talk about violence or that could happen. And then the flip side of that that I think you're pointing to is that sense of hope uh, and real trust in an organization that if something has gone wrong, that it will address it. And gosh, I, mm. like, I still have that hope, you know, and see it consistently <laughs> not happening in so many organizations right now. And I think every time I see it not happening, it's just so disappointing, you know, and I think, you know, particularly in college for students where this is a time where you're kind of emerging into adulthood, that pain of being so hopeful that justice will be done and then seeing the actual kind of bureaucratic mess of organizations and the ways in which injustice is really quite organized in many ways can be so disheartening. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a real responsibility for those of us who are engaged in education activism around this to be attentive to those hopes and fears around, around these issues, because, you know, finding ways to maintain enough hope to keep taking action while also not being so um, bogged down by fear that action isn't possible, right? That's a really, I think, tricky balance to strike in all kinds of work that is moving towards what we hope is more justice. Uh, So I think that that's so present in interactions between teachers and students and teachers and themselves. And, you know, I think that's really a, a charged dynamic around this work. Well, and it's one of the reasons I really appreciate the book, because we really need a way, not not only like with students, but just across the board to talk about what it is that violence does when it does something. Because right now, and and we um, we, had, we had a lot of stuff happening with like blackface in, in the New York state system. For some mm-hmm. reason, just people kept putting up varying degrees of aggressive statements about blackface or images of blackface, some 
all the way to like right on the borderline of hate speech to just kind of stupid Halloween costumes. So there was like this range of it, but they just kept happening. I mean, they were happening so much that if you asked a student like, oh, did you hear about the blackface incident? They would say, which one? Hmm. And so what was happening is they were all insisting on hate speech. And I kept, and people were letting them talk. I mean, there were faculty members and administrators who were just kind of letting them do this. And I kept having to explain to them, like, you do realize hate speech is not upheld in the United States court system. Mm. Like, it is not a thing that that we do, especially not around race. Like, ca- calling someone the N-word is not, I mean, I understand why you want it to be hate speech. And I get why in some contexts we want to think of it that way. But you, you're running around, I mean, you're, you're wasting a lot of rhetorical energy on a demand that demonstrates how very little you understand about the legal system. And, but then the problem is they're in this binary between like either something is hate speech or you can't do shit about it. It's just like benign action. And it's like, no, there is an action that happens in racially motivated speech like this. It's just not hate speech, but it's not nothing. And there's no sort of other way to get students to think about this so that they can, you know, do what young people are good at, which is organizing new ways of thinking and protesting issues. Instead, they're just using the same rhetorical strategies, hate speech and testimony and all this stuff. And they're not, they're not getting anything done because organizations have already become incredibly adept at handling that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that question or that kind of debate that's so present in the culture right now around what kind of harms come from speech uh, is so much a, a mm-hmm. thread that runs through this book uh, in terms of thinking about what counts as violence and what role yeah. do right. words play in that. And, uh, you know, I was reading quite a lot of work in critical um race theory, which comes out of this legal tradition and really takes up precisely that question of sifting what are the historical and legal and cultural mechanisms in place that make it so it seems as though words can never do violence and are never part of a violent system and how much that upholds processes of whiteness and of supremacy uh, that's connected to race. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. what you're saying really makes sense to me that there's this, in some ways, impasse around wanting to you know, very much uphold principles of freedom of speech, which are crucial to democratic deliberation, while also being able to sift very carefully the historical and cultural contexts in which there are patterns of words that become a part of harm and you know kind of what gets done about that I think is a separate question Um, but there's a real investment and I think it's an investment of whiteness in really separating out in all cases physical violence from symbolic action and I think that that's really a problem if we want to address the kinds of intertwined gendered and racial violence that are at the core of this book. Um, and it's a set of questions that I'm continuing to think about. I'm at work on my next book project now. Um, I was a faculty member for Ooh, a couple Oh, that's years. exciting. What's that about? Yeah, I was a faculty member for a couple years at University of Missouri and was there when uh, in 2015 when there were anti-racist protests that happened on the campus, which is, of course, just a little over an hour from Ferguson, Missouri, where Darren Wilson murdered Mike Brown. And so this book is thinking about Mm -hmm. what was going on, uh, just what happened there. You know, I left the university um, after the protests led to the resignation of the university system president and um, some other key leaders And, you know, that same set of questions around what constitutes violence and when violence happens, how should organizations respond, was so present in those anti-racist protests and the kind of national media coverage of them. Um, So I'm taking up those questions again and thinking about 
again, in higher education, you know, what needs to transform or in this case, what kinds of systems and processes and organizing needs to get unlearned, uh, starting from the premise that gender violence and racial violence is in many ways built into the existing practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which of course makes white people super uncomfortable, but as I like to remind people, it's happening whether you want to acknowledge it or not, but if you acknowledge it, you get to do something about it, and if you don't acknowledge it, it just keeps happening. So so hiding from it doesn't make it go away. We all just need to sort of acknowledge that this is a thing. (laughs) Like, doesn't mean anything about you beyond the white person. It just means that there are structures, right, that we need to be attuned to. Yeah. And, you know, I think developing capacities to really sit in discomfort is so crucial for so many different kinds of justice work, uh, including mm-hmm. white folks like yep, you and that's me a big piece of it. figuring out how to, how to kind of unlearn a lot of the really pernicious things that, that we've learned through history. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's true for lots of different kinds of trauma, right? You know, I think we started the conversation I was talking about teaching or about sexual violence and how to cultivate in oneself and in students that capacity to dwell in discomfort and to kind of Mm -hmm. track the different kinds of trauma processes that are alive in all of us whether we have experienced violence or perpetrated violence. And for most all humans, there's some of both. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and I really enjoyed the conclusion of the book about um, the rethinking the relationship between communication and agency. So the book kind of, you know, again, no one's, you can't solve these problems. Nobody's going to write a book that's like, I figured it out. But oh, I did a nice job nice. of, <laughs> if nothing else, giving me some language to think about, yeah, to think about like another way of explaining how organizations do violence that doesn't resort to physical language, but also isn't isn't diminishing it by saying like, but it's not the same as the physical. So that was really helpful. And I, I'll have to think about how I'm going to articulate that for just kind of a general population down the road. But it was, it's gotten my wheels spinning over the last couple of days while I've been reading the book. So um, with that said, we're running up on 56 minutes, which is about where I like to, to wrap the interview. Is there anything else about the book or a specific case study or insight that you want to make sure that we talk about before we wrap? I don't think so. I really appreciate the conversation that um, that we've had and okay. I'm so glad to be chatting with you about it. Yeah, I mean, it's fabulous. So again, I just want to recommend to everyone uh, Kate Lockwood Harris, Beyond the Rapist, Title IX and Sexual Violence on U.S. Campuses by Oxford University Press, uh, fresh out from last year. And just as a reminder, I know that for many of you, buying the books is not an option financially, but You can always put in a request to either an academic or a local library that they pick up a copy of this book. The university presses are not profit machines. Uh, They run at a very tight margin. We really appreciate the support they give the New Books Network and to authors like Dr. Lockwood Harris. Without without these presses, I mean, for many of us, this research would not be possible. So to the degree that you can support them, we always appreciate it. And of course, if for no other reason than having this book in a library for people to take out is a really great way to get a lot of the ideas out to people who need them. So Kate, as a way of signing off, do you have a book that you want to recommend? How close are you to finishing the next book? Do you want to recommend your next book or are we still a couple years out on <laughs> it's that? It's still a little ways out, uh, probably two to three years out on that one. Okay. Uh, but I would love to recommend All right. Well, we'll look book. for that then down the road, but is there another book uh, that's, uh, that's in press or recently in press that you want to recommend for our next interview that you're enjoying or have read or have heard good things about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'd love to recommend Nina Maria Lozano's Not One More, Feminicidio on the Border. It's from <gasps> Ohio. Oh my gosh, Lena, uh, Nina Maria Lozano and I are super Oh, yay. Um, And I think that uh, the book, um, which is also 2019, is really in conversation in many ways Mm -hmm. um, with the kinds of things we've been talking about during this podcast. Uh, In particular, um, Dr. Lozano is, I think, really highlighting the limitations of feminist new materialist theory and doing so in a way that yes. uh, is grounded in what's going on in terms of violence against women between the U.S.-Mexico border and, you know, advancing uh, this concept in the book, Border Materialism. And so I highly recommend it to 
to everyone and it'd be a great thing to pick up. And I want to second your uh, comment about asking folks to request books from libraries. I come from a long line of librarians several generations back and I think that the work that libraries do is so important in terms of making information accessible, particularly information that comes from the academy right now. Um, so yeah, definitely request books from your libraries. Yeah, well, uh, that's an awesome recommendation from Nina. I have, uh, they are, they're in love, so they're not, uh, you know, returning my emails as fast as I'd like, but maybe when, they, <laughs> when things have settled, we will get them on the New Books Network to do the book interview. Well, thanks again, Kate. This was awesome. Fabulous book. I enjoyed every second of it, and I picked up a bunch of great new ways of talking and thinking about, you know, stuff that's like really happening. I mean, right. In, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm an academic, but I'm a teacher first. And so it was really cool to see those two worlds collide in this book. And some of the ideas you had are just so valuable to people and the way that we're thinking. We need new ways of thinking. And this is, this presents a lot of those to us. So thank you so much for the work you did and for coming on the interview. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. We'll talk later. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.